Welcome to Alchemical Dialogues, an Amberlight podcast. Join Dr. Henry Critella and Rudy Rivera for their discussion on Fix Yourself, Serve, and Heal the World. The information provided on this website and these podcasts is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this website and in these podcasts is intended to be a substitute for medical, health, therapeutic diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed by the guests in these podcasts are not necessarily the opinions of Amberlight International and anyone associated with this organization. So welcome, everyone, and welcome, Rudy. Thank you, sir. I'm so glad we could arrange this. For those of you that are listening, Rudy and I met through Kathleen, and I don't know, we talked for about two hours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was supposed to be about a half hour, so you'll catch on why in a minute. <laughs> but just for a little bit of an introduction, he is the CEO of the Father Tracy Advocacy Center, which he founded in 2017 in Rochester, New York, in a part of the city that is uh, rather difficult. He's been instrumental in making quite a change. He's been in public service all his life. He's worked as a youth advocate, HIV outreach worker, community program analyst, and more and more. He's always worked to address the human condition by dealing with the entire needs of a person. So in an interesting way, his specialty is being a non-specialist and mm. helping people. He's been a researcher, an investigator, a teacher, an advocate, and a friend. Mm. Thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Yes. So one of the things that came up when we were talking to prepare for this is how important it is for you. I don't quite know how to say it. You don't just work with men but issues about men mm -hmm. has been very important for you. Mm -hmm. And what that means with men and their sons, men and women, but your focus and your, experience, your, your personal experience has been really focused a lot on what it means to be a man. Is that a good that's, way of putting it? I think that's about the, that is as fair a statement as one could make. Yes, true. Can you talk a little bit about that? And maybe start with your personal experience. Yeah. Manhood, fatherhood, daddyhood, validation. You know, I throw all these words out because in many ways, the story begins, you know, for me, being born to my biological father, but never, ever really having had a relationship with him throughout my life. I'm at the, as I like to use a basketball metaphor, I'm at the, I'm at the beginning of the fourth quarter. And so there's still game to be played. But uh, right now we got a little deficit in terms of some of the social issues, father and masculinity and manhood and all those being, I think, at the core of what is really one of the major challenges. And so let me start the story this way. I was born in Puerto Rico, old San Juan, right there in front of uh, what we call it in Morro, built by the Spaniards way back in the day. And from there, I woke up one morning and I found myself in a place called Bootsbach, Germany, in which I was about five years old and started school. At that time, I really, you know, you're five years old, you don't know nothing. You just go wherever mommy takes you. And then there were two other brothers. So there were three of us with her. At that, began, at that point in stage in life, I began to experience something that I later, long down the road in life, began to be able to sort out, which led to why I do the work that I do and the things that I say about what I say. And it was, uh, it was a stepfather, a man who, you know, because he was a man, I didn't really separate him from my biological father because I never really had seen my biological father. So there was no contrast. He was the man. But as life went on and at a very early stage, I discovered a feature about the man that was something that really disturbed me. And then later as I got older, I began to hear about the myth of machismoism and all those isms. And uh, he abused my mother. And I, at five years old, I walked in, as I shared before, into the kitchen to see my mother gasping for air him standing by the stove, I'll never forget in his uniform. And I looked at my mother and I looked at him and I remember two emotions evolving, but at the same, at that time, you're too young to understand what just happened. So one of them would be trauma. Okay, now everybody knows trauma. Well, in the military, back in those days, it was a very isolated world, a world in which whatever happened on base stayed on base. So there were a lot of dynamics that probably the same outside the military bases, but 
within the military bases, you know, that was something you never spoke of, family secrets, so to speak, you know, that old cliche. From that point, I evolved two emotions that sort of controlled me for, for most of my life. The first was uh, anger, and the second was rage. Uh, and the anger came from what I'd seen, what my stepfather had done, and the rage came from being powerless to do something, do anything about it, you know? And then from there, it sort of turned personal toward where I was the constant conflict, constant buffer uh, between my mother and him, and, and always wishing for the day that I could whoop his, you know what? But at the same time, reminding myself that there were things I was powerless to do. During that period of time, my mother sought to try to send me away, and I remember I always refused it. And so how does that story evolve to, to your original question? Because I can go on. There are many young boys like me who have been through what I went through. There are many young boys like me who have grown up basically without a father. And in this world, one of the things I learned about people in general is this idea that you need to be validated. It's almost like in the first three months of a child's life, you have to bombard them with this experience of thriving. Because if you don't, they just simply die. It's the natural feature of life. So the absence of a father in the contextual world of mothers uh, overly burdened with raising families and then, you know, children kind of asking themselves, because you never get away from it. I remember at the age of five at that experience saying to myself, my God, where is my biological father? I, I remember asking myself that question. Where is he? You know, where is my protector? Where is the guy that should keep me from uh, experiencing the, the wrath at times of this man? So all those floating pieces, Henry, really deal with an issue of, I find among men, a question of self-esteem, first and foremost. Secondly, a question of what is my role? And thirdly, a definition of role based on what everybody else sees each other do. Hence why you have such great camaraderie on the streets when people say, oh, that's my family. And all it is is a bunch of men. But in the context of that group of men, all of them are experiencing the same thing, but none of them see it that way. They just see it as this life. So I devoted myself in many ways to not just speaking to the, the equation of men, I speak more forcefully probably to the equation of women, the things that they endure from us, the things that I know I did, you know, the abuse that I not physically, but emotionally brought to my kid's mother and, and my children. And so what happened was, you know, I evolved. Uh, and then before you know it, you're repeating the same behaviors that you swore you hated. You know, I remember saying, I'll never be like my father. Well, what did I do? I turned out to be just like him, folks, and never spent a day with him. So there is a connection between DNA, I have to believe. Because when I did see him several times later in life, I remember walking away from those meetings going, man, I turned out just like him. My God. And I promised myself I wouldn't be like that. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of years working in the prisons, on the streets, shelters, you name it. East Coast, West Coast, most of it, and many times, like in my four years in a detox center, bombarding men about, let's examine ourselves. Let's confront this baggage that's got you addicted, because it's what led to my experience. And in that context, it was that baggage unbeknownst to me, medicated subtly by social distractions, whether it was hanging out, partying, doing this, doing that. You know, and by the way, addiction doesn't always manifest itself solely in uh, drugs. Let me get that one straight. And so in defense of those of us who have to battle this, it's not just something that's exclusive to those who use drugs or for the reasons of uh, some of those that I've uh, mentioned. So you told me that there were at least three men in particular who were really influential in your development in your life in a positive way. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you talk about them a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, again, one of the roles that I try to play, especially when I work with families and children, where I see the dynamics that are already like deja vu for me. Uh, one of the things that I try to do in the context of, especially if they're children, is to be the kind of male figure that sort of distorts everything that I know is in their heads. It was in mine. And so a lot of times people say, you know, Rudy, you're, you're overbearing. And I go, no, it's just I've been fighting all my life and I'm still a fighter. It's just the way it works, you know. But in that context, Validation, as I said earlier, is a key element to anybody recovering. It's just the way it works. You know, when you're in your despair and you can't find the heart to, to believe in yourself, you got to pray, God, send me somebody that will believe in me more than myself. And so in my younger days, I got caught up in uh, the fast life, running the streets, carrying on, being a socialite, all this other good stuff, having a great professional career. 
And then suddenly one day, the world comes crashing down. The uh, police officer pull up. <laughs> they say, are you Rodolfo Rivera? And I go, yes, I am. And they say, we need you to step out. And they handcuffed me and they took me downtown to booking. And that's a whole nother show that I could tell you about what went on there. Because at that point, there was this war on drugs, Ronald Reagan, Monroe County Task Force on drugs. Everybody was against drugs, drugs, drugs. Mm -hmm. And so because I was a, a up and rising person in the Latin community, I had a TV show back then called Shades of Grey. And in the world I got caught up in, because I was from both sides, I was from the professional side, if you want, and I was from the streets, which is how it worked for me, you know? I am a country boy from Puerto Rico, from one of the poorest neighborhoods in Puerto Rico. So I just got to tell you that streets were not anything that were strangers to me. It was like my place of comfort, right? Same place it is for all the men, you know, right? right? So what happens in life? I get in trouble, and I happen to be working at the time for Action for a Better Community. And at that moment in time, there was a gentleman by the name of James Mamba McCullough, who helped in the 60s with Sal Lewinsky to establish uh, an anti-poverty organization during the war on poverty in the Johnson era. So he was a man who came up during that way. He was always a, a really a demonstrative advocate and a man that uh, had no shame in speaking the truth, you know. And so without me knowing, our lives were going to intersect. And he, to me, was the man who came to rescue me. If you go back to where I started, and I said at five years old, I said, where's my father mm -hmm. oh, while I'm going through this? Well, in this case, yeah, I was going through something. It was just my mother. I was the eldest. My mother had no idea what I had delved into. My family tolerated. My kids were young. They didn't know, but my kid's mother had to go through hell through my experiences, like many other families do. And uh, there came James Mamba McCullough. And I love him because I, I have to tell you something. And, and when it became public, after I got arrested, it went to the press. I worked in television, so imagine being the headline news for that Saturday oh. Wednesday afternoon broadcast. I can remember yeah. the Wednesday afternoon, looking at TV and seeing yourself all over, reporters hounding you for what happened and all this. And the only thing I could say based on the advice of an attorney was, keep your mouth shut, Rudy. No comment. And so, you know, I had to endure a lot of incoming without really being able to respond to it in the context of what I was accused of and what I really did. And that was a, a very important distinction. However, in that time, I worked for ABC and James McCullough came to my aid. And I'll never forget the meeting when we were in his office and uh, I was uh, seated with my supervisor, my children's mother directly across from me, Jim at the head of the table and there was I. And this was in his office and it was an old, old fashioned uh, wood table, you know, that kind of an environment. And I remember Jim saying to me, uh, Rudy, I'm not gonna watch you self-destruct. I'd rather fire you than to watch you self-destruct. So you have to make a decision because if you're not in a treatment program by Monday morning, I'm gonna fire you. And I remember sitting there going, damn, you're in big trouble, real big trouble. And um, at that point, I was blessed to have worked out of a satellite office in Jordan. And I got to tell you, man, in the professional world of people at that time, Andy Doniger, who later became the uh, health department director here in Monroe County some years back, he was the chief of pediatrics at Jordan. And when all this thing came crumbling down, there was another African-American doctor by the name of Charles Smith. He was the head of mental health there at uh, Jordan. And by God's grace, by God's grace, the two of those people, along with Jim, put me in contact with a doctor by the name of Dr. Remy. He was a brilliant psychiatrist. And at that point, you're in shock. You're in shock because you got legal proceedings. Everybody's talking. You're trying to get help. And my point to all this was to say that the people that I thought were going to help me, they all disappeared. But yet the people I thought were going to crucify me, Henry, those were the ones who came to my aid. Little did I know. And I was a young guy in my 30s, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so they put me on this path that led me to go to Conifer Park for 35 days. And I'll never forget when I came back, I met Jim as, a, as a, you know, word had gotten back to him because he was getting reports. You know, that was the agreement. You go, but you don't let me know. And let me back this pause for a quick moment. The beauty I loved about Jim was he, when he brought me in that meeting before the conversation started, he says to me these words, have you been complying with your program that we're trying to start? And I go, Oh, absolutely. Yes, sir. 
And then I remember sitting there, he looks at me, he goes, okay. And I'll never forget, he reaches into his pocket like this and he pulls out an envelope. <laughs> when he pulled out that envelope, I went, uh-oh. He opens the letter and he reads the letter that Mr. Rivera has not, has not been compliant. Mr. Rivera, blah, 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 I missed this, missed that, missed mm -hmm. this, missed that. Mr. Rivera had not done this. Remember, when you go down that road, I don't have a problem. You know what I'm saying to you? I'm trying to, I'm trying to give everybody a keen insight to how the brain overrides. I ain't got a problem. But the other subside of the brain is saying, you got a problem, dude, right? So Jim became the, the, the what's the word I want to use? The guardrails in mm -hmm. terms of what was happening, you know? And, uh, you know, not many people were getting the opportunities I got. Most other people got arrested like me that were black and brown were going to prison. They, you know, they, made, they charged me with big time felonies. But here I was, and I want to say it this way. I was getting back then for a Puerto Rican man, what we were calling back then, white person's justice. This was during the mecca, the environment of mass incarceration, the war on drugs, et cetera, et cetera, right? So Jim at that time was the executive director of ABC. So I come back and I meet him in the parking lot. And Jim was a big man. And he comes up to me and he gives me a hug. It was probably the greatest hug I've ever had or ever will have in my life. Because for that moment, he made me feel biological. He made me feel nurtured. He made me feel validated. Right. You yeah. see? So he came in as the first. There's much I can say. Then Reverend Samuel McCree was the pastor at Zion Hill Missionary Baptist Church. I was attending church there at that time, you know, trying to find my way, having gone to treatment and still trying to find my way or not wanting to go to treatment. So in the early days, when everything went down and exploded in Rochester, Reverend uh, McCree came to my aid. And the two of them to me were like Gabriel on one side, that being <laughs> Reverend uh, McCree and Archangel Michael being James Marvel McCullough. And I remember Reverend McCree inviting me to a social event. It was at the Rochester Convention Center. And he said, I'm oh, really, I want you to go with me to this place. I said, Reverend, I don't think you want to be seen with me right now. You know, I'm, I got leprosy. You know what I'm saying? Everybody knows I'm, wow, Rudy, what the hell? You know, I thought he was Mr. Clean and, you know, shining clean. Uh-oh. Nevertheless, he insisted. And I remember going with him there. I remember feeling really embarrassed, you know, to walk in and, you know, everybody, you know, it's like walking into a restaurant, everybody turns around and stops breathing and goes, oh. So he came to my aid. He continued to assist me. He continued to stay by me, you know. And so at that point, life continued. But I want to back up in between them to Father Tracy, who's the third part of this story. Right. Father Tracy in the Latin community was a man who always had regard for me. He defended me during the fight against HIV when I was taking on the diocese. He, he, he stood by me when people would trash talk and false rumors, and he would always say, no, I don't believe that. I know that to be not to be true. And so he was always one of my defenders. And then again, he was a white guy, spoke Spanish better than most people. He was revered in the community, but we was just we were just a, a natural attraction. So we started working together way back when he was much younger during that time of James, Father Tracy, and Reverend McCree. Each of them protected me in the social settings of life. I went away to treatment. I came back. I had to do two years of follow-up. And everything was going reasonably well. I built an HIV center program that still operates. You know, so I felt this need to give something back. You know, I felt a need to, to prove to myself that I was better than what I had become. I thought I was a bag of chips and Kool-Aid until I fell. But coming up and picking yourself up was a very different journey than was the original journey. So in my journey back, I built this center as a way of sort of validating myself, making myself feel good. But at the same time, it was exercising the passion and love that I have for people in my heart because that's all I knew to do. So I had to go back and say, yeah, man, I felt screwed up, but this is what I'm trying to do now. And, and trying to bring that message back to those that I serve still today. And in that context, Henry, Father Tracy came along. James McCullough died. That one hurt. That's when I left ABC. I ran. I took off to Arizona. I just ran, fight or flight. Yeah. I got tired of fighting. So I figured, you know what? I'm out of here. I'm leaving. I quit ABC. Went out to Arizona. That's a whole nother world. But back to the full circle. In 2016, I came back. And then in 2017, I started the center. But between that, I went on unemployment. I went back to school. I became a CNA. The hardest job I've ever done in my life isn't to sit here and talk and think and write and do that. 
but it was to tend to eight patients on the unit of which I worked at St. Anne's. That was probably the most significant moment in my own uh, development, guys, because it made me realize where life is going to take me, possibly. For people who don't know, what kind of unit was that? Oh, it was it's a nursing home for the elderly. I'm sorry. The elderly, uh, you know, like a home where most of us send our family and right. St. Anne's, which is right up here on the northeast side of the city off of Portland. And it's like, you know, where a lot of Latino people send their family members. However, for me, I was looking for a job. I went to school. I became a CNA. And I remember going to school and in, in a class of people who were had greater challenges than me. And here I was, this elder fellow trying to figure out what the hell am I doing in this class? But nevertheless, it turned out and it led to the most significant time in my life. It really was, it was just something that humbled me to the point where it, it, it destroyed the old person in me. It, it made me realize that I could no longer carry that person along with me in this journey and that I had to become a new, I had to become a new person. And so in that sense, it was a challenge. Go tend to people. It was a challenge to be humbled by, man, is this it? Is this what I've done with my life? Yes. And so in that sense, Henry, I took those things with me. So where, where I was going with this was to say that all these things that I've done, all these situations I've been in, all these people that I've been blessed to serve, it goes back to that little five-year-old boy. And that at that point, the anger and rage really helped me to evolve as a person who, who always had this belief and still have it. That but for the grace of God, there go I. And for a moment in time, there I was strung out, addicted on the street, homeless, running, lost, neglecting my family, uh, tearing up my children. So I go back to that five-year-old boy and then moving fast forward to the people, the men in particular. They were a stability. They were an image of what I believed it was supposed to be. And so I began to, I began to honor them. You know, when Jim died, that hurt. That hurt big time. I just got to tell you, that one led me to leave ABC. That, that soul blew me away that, that I remember crying out to God. And I'm going to say it in his presence because he knows that's how I feel. I would say to him these words, Lord, you brought these people into my life. They have helped me. They have served me well, Lord. And you take them from me. And that became a fight. And I got angry with him. He took Jim. Then he took Reverend McCree. I fell apart, I took off, I come back, I find Father Tracy, the remaining member of the, the Three Amigos, right. and then the Lord takes him as well. And in this time, my mother passed. I went home to take care of her. So I was having all these episodes of, man, what is going on here? And then I came to work on the Avenue and I've lost about 15 people in my time. People in the community. People that I serve, people that helped me build this place, Henry. People that will come in and say, Rudy, I'll sweep the street for you. And I go, man, I am, God bless you, dude. Because I, my sense is that people are, are very intuitive. You know, on the streets, they can, re they can recognize authenticity. You know, they can recognize whether your energy is genuine. It's how it works on the streets. And so apparently, you know, here I came saying, okay, I, I'm, I'm coming here to do something. Nobody seems to care. And this place was just anarchy on, on, you know, it was just anarchy down here. And though it still remains, it's gotten better because much has changed. But back to the evolution. Well, talk uh, a little bit about what, a little bit more about the Father Tracy Center. So what was that neighborhood like when you started? Sure. Let me put it like this. Clinton Avenue was the centerpiece of what we would call the Bermuda Triangle of drugs. <laughs> to, no, seriously, you have to invert the triangle. First of all, it ran from Buffalo to Syracuse. Okay. Dansville. All right. So just follow me. There mm -hmm. in the middle was Clinton Avenue. In all that region, Clinton Avenue was known for solely one thing drugs. And people would migrate here in herds. In herds. I'm talking about white folks in herds. In the meantime, the dynamics of drug selling and dealing became abundantly profitable just by sheer traffic. And so what happened when I arrived here was this was an open drug market uh, across the field where the International Plaza here now sets, something that I praise God helped me to put together. It really helped me heal. It was uh, just a shooting gallery, needles everywhere. I mean, just a whole area around here infested with needles and drug sales and just total anarchy, uh, residents living in fear. 
drug dealer standing, you know, 20, 30 deep. I'll use my block so you understand what happened here. Mm -hmm. Evergreen, which is right next to St. Michael's, that's my church now, guys. Okay. All right. So I want to put that in context. So for me, it's all the way up to Clifford coming down to Scranton's, which is right next to us. How many blocks is that for the people? Who that would be two blocks. That would be two blocks. St. Michael's is a pretty huge church. So it's, you know, it's a block in itself, city block. Okay. And then right next to it is, again, divided by Evergreen. And there we are next to right. the church. All right. So in that time, the, the chaos okay. here was unbelievable. I mean, people were shooting each other, killing each other. And then when I came back, I used to walk the streets with Father Tracy, even him in his wheelchair, because we had just reconnected. And I started, you know, going back to the streets with him where we had been in the past. He was in a wheelchair and I had just come back. And I, you know, I came back with anger because I didn't want to come back to Rochester. But then when I saw what had happened, I was like, my God, what happened here in the time? I've because that, that used to be a pretty nice neighborhood. It was always a nice neighborhood. It was a neighborhood where it would be like the classic to use a, a thing maybe folks can relate to. It was a classic uh, scene of Andy Griffin show, Mayberry. You know, <laughs> a quiet town, people walking back and forth, you know, a pharmacy, yeah. Yeah. you know, you know, there was some drug dealing, you know, the cleanest people on the, on the avenue, you could always tell who the drug dealers users were because the ones who were heroin users, they were always the best dressed. They were always the most flamboyant, you know, and you say, damn. Mm -hmm. So there was somehow a culture. Right. The devolution of that led to where we are now, in which the seniors are afraid to walk. St. Michael's, yeah. you know, they locked their doors. As far as I'm concerned, they got up and ran. And so there were no providers down here. And I had some dumb idea that came to me in an impartation, because I always tell people, if you want to know how this started, I'm about to tell you the truth. I was walking with Father Tracy. We were at the lower end class Burbank and Coleman, which is heading north toward around the quake. And I paused with Father and we stopped there to, you know, to sort of, you know, hey, let's stop using drugs, you know. And standing there, I swear, God is my witness. The words to me, the words come like this. You will build a center. And I remember I went, what? He and said I, that or you heard? I didn't understand. Father I, Tracy said that? No, a voice said that to me. Henry. Right, so you and heard I the said voice. said to me, you will build a center. Right. I'm not kidding you, folks. I get so freaked out, I go over and I put my hands on Father Tracy just to make sure, like, whoa. Well, Henry, the rest is what happened. Mm -hmm. hey, but I want to fill in the story so that what I just shared with you, you really listening people will take mm -hmm. to heart. I came back up. I went back to the center, which I've been brought back to at ABC The Run, the one that I started with the HIV Center. I was back there. But I always had this desire in my heart from the time I came back to Rochester to come back to Clinton Avenue, because it was crazy. You know, the first three days that I arrived in Rochester, all I did was drive up and down anonymously because nobody knew I was in Rochester, asking myself, good old Lord, what happened here? Fast forward it, okay? It was, uh, it was ugly, man, it was just ugly. So I get to the point where I'm at the, at the Action Fund Center and I tell one of my staff, you know, go do, go do outreach on Clinton Avenue. We gotta go down, we gotta go down there. But as we go down there, I remember a few days earlier, I had been down on the avenue and, and I got so upset about what was happening that I went to AutoZone, which is kitty corner to us. I went in there and I tell the guy, give me the reddest paint that you have. I mean, red, you can see a mile away. I got so upset, Henry, that I went over to a house, which was a shooting gallery where about 15 people had died behind that building in the time that I had arrived and the time I was here. And I posted and I tagged something I've never done in my life, no mas, in big red letters. Right. And so what happens? I'm walking around the front to tag the front of the house. And all of a sudden I see a cop car flying up the street and I go, oh, boy, something must be going on. Well, they were flying up the street to ask me, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm just checking out the property here. Mm -hmm. No idea that God would save me from them seeing what I had just done. So mm -hmm. in the meantime, I got this uh, can of paint in my hand. And so they said, all right, well, you, you know, you got to move from here. I'm like, OK, all right, no problem, officer. So the officers leave. And we were gonna do a, a police walk with them later. So I quickly leave the area and go over to where the center is now. And I throw the can of paint over the fence, figuring, let me get rid of the evidence, right? So suddenly everyone is assembling to go for the walk. And as I start to approach the, the assembly in front of the steps of St. Michael, there stand the officers who had pulled up on me and said, yo, what are you doing? So I'm going, uh-oh, they see that no mass. This thing might explode on me, right? So anyway, I'm with Captain 
Kachelli, I think was his name, the Clinton captain. And we went for the walk. And as we come back, I'm standing in front of what the location of the center is now. And it was an empty building. And I remember sitting there right with him, saying to him, man, this would make a nice location for what we've been talking you know, about. Remember I told you, you're going to build a center. I said, man, this will make a perfect location right here in the middle of hell. And uh, I went away. This was a few days before that, right? But a couple of days prior to that, when I'm down here, these are like a lot of days rolling together. A police officer rolls up and says, hi, Rudy. The guy who was a Latino officer in the area says, hi, Rudy. He says, Rudy, man, look at what somebody did over there. And I go, yeah, man, isn't that terrible? I can't believe it, but I support the message, all right? The truth be told, everybody knew that Rudy had tagged the house because it spread like wildfire. It got so crazy that people that I was working with were starting to tag trees and other buildings with no moss. Really? The police, came, the police came to me and said, Rudy, Rudy, can you tell them to stop? And I go, well, what are you talking about? The no moss. Well, I'm, I don't know nothing about that. I said, but I'll be happy to help. So yeah, I had to go back out there later and own it and say to folks, yo, please stop. So what happens now back to the building? I'm standing there looking at it as an empty shell. I don't know who owns it. It was Burgos Tax Service, probably you know, one of the Burgoses. I hadn't been, I hadn't been, I hadn't been back in years, you know? And so what happens? I go back to the center and I send my staff on outreach. My staff come back, Henry, on a day in outreach with a note in their hand that says, Roberto Burgos said to call him about that a space he has. Okay, follow this story, guys, about a space he has. So I figured, okay, where the heck am I going to go on Clinton Avenue? But let's see. When I arrived down here, Henry, it was the building that I stood in front of with the captain and said, man, this would make a nice location to start a center. Had you been looking for, did he know you were looking for a building? No, my staff just happened to know that I said I wanted to set up and expand down to the avenue. Okay. So as they were doing outreach, they encountered him, you know, by by God's divine intervention. That's the way right. I see it now. Right. And they brought me back this note. I called him. I came down here. And that was in August of 2017. And in August of 2017, um, I tried to build the center through ABC with at the time to bring it down here, but they, they weren't interested. And so I just went ahead and I met Robert here. And I said to him, um, I looked at the place and I said, uh, you know what, Robert? I don't have any rent, but I'll take it. And we have one picture of me taking down the for rent sign. That's a historical picture. One picture. He took it. And I took it down. No money, no nothing. But a desire to listen to what I was told. Understand what I'm saying to you in the context of all of the other things I've shared with you. Destroyed human being. The person trying to find a solution to the baggage, which goes to your question about man and why and why and why. Right. Because it is that deep, it is that lovely, ugly, and it does take time, but you have to find the courage to stay focused. So I took it. Five months later, I quit ABC. I was 62. I could get my partial retirement. I quit, and I came here to create this thing on a full-time basis. I put my own resources into it, including my time and talents. And in that regard, that's how the center got evolved. It started with a little walk on the street, follow Tracy. And then the sad part is, I was excited, you know, in my heart, I was like, man, Lord, I get a chance to work with Father Tracy. Oh my goodness, Rudy, this is like the most unbelievable thing. And then Father comes in here one day and says, I have good news. So I have good news. What's going on, Father? I've been given six months to live. And I remember sitting in my chair in a little conference area. I'm sitting in my chair, Henry. And that was just, if you've listened to my story, that was just another deadly blow. God. Why do you do this to me? Why do you do this to me? Because it's a question I've asked many times in my life. I'm not, I'm not someone who did not know God. I'm, I'm Latino. I'm Catholic. You know what I'm saying, guys? Mama sends you there the day you're born. But it was this conflict. So people, when you, when, when you took, at least when I say to people, when you try to understand people's dynamics, it's not just flesh. It's about a spiritual battle within. And it's a question of who prevails. You know, so here we were opening the center. And then Father died. Yeah. And ever since then, I have basically remained on course in honor of my mother, first and foremost, in honor of like my grandfather, who was a great father to me. He was my papi when I would go to Puerto Rico. He was my papi. Mm -hmm. I used to love calling him papi, you know, because I wanted a father. You know what I mean? So my grandfather was my father. You know what I mean, guys? So in that sense, 
I then came to this realization when my mother died, which then led me to where I see myself right now. After my mother died, I felt like a little boy lost. I don't know if anybody can relate to that, but it's an experience that I think some of us may have, but I felt lost. I felt depressed. I felt angry. I felt like I'd wasted my life. I felt embarrassed to have come back to Rochester. I felt embarrassed to go work at a plastics factory asking myself, what am I doing here? Is this it, Lord? Is this, is this it? Is this where you've taken me? And lo and behold, little did I know, everything that happened to me, including my drug use life and all that stuff I did would be a preparation for where now I reside. Great. I mean, what a story. Give people an idea of those couple of blocks that you serve. How has it changed now? Oh, thank you. I've said a lot of stuff, but, but let me now talk about how if you persist through those issues, you will see the other side, which is where I am now. This is the poorest area in town. If you took all of the textbooks that are written about data about Rochester, and you literally drove a spike, and I use that, those words deliberately, you drove a spike through it. At the bottom of that would be the entrance to our center, which is 821. We're the centerpiece of all of it. Unbelievable. I'm telling you, Google it, do it. That's how I'm feeling. We landed right in the middle of it all. I've been to 13 overdoses in my time. I have not been to any recently, thank God. I was here for seven murders. I was here on, June, on March 29th when a man was shot right next to me in Valero. Very casually, nobody gave a crap. People were taking selfies with that man dying. No one called an ambulance. It was the most disgusting portrayal of human life that I'd ever seen, just total depravity. So that's the background, that's the stink. That's the smell, you don't smell, but that's the smell. The physical part was just watching people be consumed daily, whether selling drugs or using drugs. Watching people go to recovery, come back and fall apart again. Watching people want to find hope, but don't know where to start. And so for us, it was really a question of, at least for me too, it was a question of, um, we have to make a change. And so the center started, which helped to evolve a movement that had taken 40 years to develop the plaza. We were instrumental in fighting for the plaza, the final push across the goal line. We were instrumental in setting up the project to demonstrate that it could be done. I laid down more than a thousand barricades. What kind of plaza is it? It's called the International Plaza. It's, a, it's a basically based on this idea in Latin culture where plaza is the center of town. I'm sure like with most other places. Mm -hmm. But in Puerto Rico, they're particularly significant because that's where people sell their products and people come to unite and people come to hang out. So we were trying to replicate and restore the avenue with something that was symbolically of the past. And we built this concept called the International Plaza. Hmm. And in that concept, the idea was to bring vendors and others and the like and culture and activities. And we've got through our first year, rough start. But again, it's a major undertaking. You can't transform what's taken all these years to destroy in a matter of one year. And so now we gauged, we're into the second year, just like the center. No, I couldn't solve the world's problem in the first three months or almost five years later going into six. We're pretty strong now. Give people a feeling for how the neighborhood has changed. The neighborhood number one has changed is that you can come to Scranton's and Evergreen and the uh, 40 or 50 drug dealers you see here, you'd be lucky if you see two or three. So we've learned to coexist. So we've worked to clean up our block. Everybody here on the streets knows who the center is and for the most part, who Mr. Rivera is. You know, he's the old man on the block, don't mess with him. You know, and don't sell drugs in front of his center. You don't care what you do, just don't do it in front of the center. And if you do it in front of the center, he's gonna call you out. But if you need a shirt off his back, go in there and ask him, he'll give it to you. And so the culture has changed in that we're embedded. We have relationships, people look out for us, people clean my, my, the streets here for me. They collect our garbage. I have a little compensation program because it's important for me to validate people with some sense of currency that is about, you did a good job, here's your money, versus I'm willing to deal and selling drugs and risking my life. So I try to interject positive opportunities that help build character. So we're embedded. We serve the best coffee, like I said earlier. We make the best ham and cheese sandwiches. We never get a complaint. And we just have this beautiful relationship where people know that if you want help, you'll get it. We've had encounters, but because we have relationships on the street, we also had to send out notice to folks on the streets 
don't you dare come up against the center. We had an incident in December that I won't go into, but simply we had to send a clear message out to the streets that what you did is a no-no. And they came up against the center and that's a no-no. So I'll go as far as that. So when you ask me what's changed, we're here, we're here. I mean, we're here to stay. And I have a goal of building a, a food pantry, it's coming, a tutorial center, it's coming, art and cultural activities, it's coming, and a movie neighborhood movie theater, it's coming. So we wrote a white paper, I'd love to talk about that. We got into the realm of the research part. You never asked me about you. If you're gonna to get to the research part, oh yeah, man, we uh, we we let we put what we would call a a slam dunk from half court. <laughs> you have grants. You're pretty well funded. You told me. Oh yeah, we're very well funded for the simple reason that we operate the plight of the people from this perspective. We are the voice of the people. Hear us speak. We do not need your interventions. As a matter of fact, I'd be the first to say your interventions is what's got us in this mess if I want to go to racial structuralism and all them isms. However, here's what we do need. We need your money and we need this much and we're going to do it for this purpose. And we have the skill sets here to write great white English. I mean that. And I say that deliberately, to talk their talk. And we mastered that. I learned that through researching in the white paper that we produced. We're about to explode the landscape with that document. So we don't go at it like, woe is me, please. We go at it as we're here to clean ourselves up and you have the money and we're proposing X, Y, Z because we know what we need. This is from the voice of the people. All I am is the instrument, the vessel that brings it forth. Right. So we have secure funding. You know, the center's funded for the next five years. We started with zero dollars and the first gift was from my barrel and I'll give him credit, Miguel Melendez, who's the uh, council president, believed in me and gave me 3,000. And then St. Michael's, the parish, Cabrini Parish, gave us another 3000 And we started with $6,000. And we're in the uh, six-digit realm, hovering between four and five. Mm -hmm. That's an amazing story. Yeah. I mean, sometimes if, if I tell it, I go, man, it's amazing. But when you live it, it's just, all right, man, another day. You know, got to get to the office because, you know, people are hungry. I got to make sure we're doing this and doing that. So there were, there were a couple of things, again, when we were talking before. For me, it's, I keep hearing all, from my personality, I keep hearing all of these obstacles that pop up that I know for me, I would have been perseverating on, how do you get through this? This is crazy. I'm never going to be able to do this. Do mm -hmm. you remember what you told me? Um, probably not. <laughs> what did I say? Well, you came forward in your chair and you said, obstacles? What obstacles? I just blow right through them. Oh, that's true. I'm sorry. See, I, I you know, I, when you say obstacle, I'm going, okay, how big is it? <laughs> how big of an yeah. obstacle is it? Because I promise you, find an oak tree and give me a butter knife and watch what happens. Yeah. It's just a it's just a spirit of a determination of a passion that in my younger days, because I was angry, people would always say, Man, you're so angry. And I'd go, No, I'm not. And one day I had an epiphany. I remember saying, I'm not angry, I'm just passionate about what I believe. Yeah. It is the energy that fuels me. It is when people come back to me and say, Rudy, man, I'm doing good. That's all I can take. I can't take none of this. It's here, this is irrelevant. But when people come back, or like when I came into work today, dressed as I am, people mm -hmm. on the street know that when Mr. Rivera comes here with a tie and a <laughs> suit on, seriously, I'm just trying to tell you how the streets work. I, this is how it really works. They'll go, uh-oh. Must be some shit about to happen. But Mr. Rivera's here with a tie and a suit. Because every time they see me in a tie and a suit, they know something is about to happen. You know, and so today I said to them, I'm going to represent us. How do I look? This is a relationship. I love them. They love me. Right. You know what I'm saying? And I affirm it that way. How do I look? Oh, you look good. All right. You think I look good enough to represent us? Oh, yeah, 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 Mr. Rivera. Right. That's how I get. That's how I get through it. If you if you want to know how I push through. The other part that struck me is you heard that voice. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and it was really clear. Oh yeah, let me, folks. I tell people this. I told God I didn't want it. I didn't want to deal with him. I didn't want nothing. I just want to live my life and have my free will. So what did he say? Okay. Go for it. And as he would rise me, he would drop me just as hard. Okay. Mm -hmm. Without notice. 
And apparently he kept saying, Rudy, you keep operating the same pattern. Are you looking for a new outcome? Because I'm in control of all these things that you do. And when I get tired of them, I cash them in because of what I said. And I mean this. I told him, leave me alone. I went so crazy, Henry, that I used the analogy of Paul on the road to Damascus. This is how crazy I got. Yo, leave me alone. I don't want. And so what did he do? He slapped me down, my brother. Took everything. Stripped me naked. Mm-hmm. Put me through a whole lot of things that I now realize was all his correction. Because what I had said had been so offensive. And what I could not get away from, Henry, was this idea that he had predestined from the beginning that you will serve me and you will serve me in this capacity. Okay. So when I say to you the voice, oh, there have been many times he's taught and many a times he's correct. But as it relates to this center, that did happen. That will always be recorded as my presentation of the history of how this really happened. And that when someone, you said earlier, well, Rudy's the founder and I was telling somebody the other day when they came out here to visit me, I said, you know what, let me say something to you. I'm not a founder of nothing. I said, but I tell you what I, about that word. The center found me. The center founded me. For I was blind and I could not see. And I was lost, but now I'm found. Because Henry, the transformation was, he never persisted. He never stopped pursuing me. And in time, he brought me to where I am now, which is like this. Any person that I serve, I mean it's on the bottom of my heart. Any person that I serve reminds me of an incident with a guy in a day labor place in Arizona when I went crazy and went out there to chase women and get all crazy. And I remember sitting next to a guy who, who was in a red jumpsuit. And I mean, he stunk to high hell. It was about two o'clock in the morning. I was angry, you know, just angry about my life and stuff. And I remember I was complaining when they said, well, you know, your wages for the uh, for hourly are five bucks. And I go, five bucks? Man, who the hell can make a living with that kind of money, right? So I was complaining, murmuring, I'm complaining. A guy finally says to me, excuse me, can I ask you a question? I go, I thought, oh, shit, man, we're going to fight here in the center. He says, can I ask you a question? And he goes, how much is eight times zero? And I look at my, what? Zero. He goes, well, at least at the end of the day, you'll have $40. You got that now? And so what's my point? Every time I see somebody, I listen, Henry. I listen to my engagement in my conversation with that human being. Because I'm always operating this notion, is that you, Jesus? And are you coming to test me? When I have to challenge people, when I know I don't want to put up with their stuff, but I must be tolerant and patient. And so I don't never lose sight of that. These are the people that allow me to sleep in a bed These are the people that allow me to eat. These are the people whose feet I wash because you know what? They're the reason I have what I have. They're the reason. And I have a duty to serve them with 150%. And that's something that's a lost art in these days in terms of service to people. So yeah, they are the reason that I exist and they are the reason that all these things have happened. And and that is the reason for why things have happened. I did not want it, uh, Henry. But now I've accepted it. Mm-hmm. I see I see all the blessings that have come from it. I'm going to tell you that right now. Because if you wonder how we got to where we got to, it has not been me. I just mean it. You also mentioned there's an authenticity that comes through. Oh, yeah. And has that always been a part of you, you think? Oh, yeah. That's why I say people leave, leave Rudy alone, man. He tends to be blunt. Mm-hmm. Don't get him started because he'll tell you the truth. So that's mm-hmm. something you you were born with. It just is. But it's also when you work in chaos, I've learned this. I'm the kind of guy that when things get chaotic, Henry, all I do is I stay still. I become an organism of let's slow down. I'm out. Back to the the analogy or the illustration of the children that I work with. When they see me, I want them to see a strong Latin man because those kind of images don't permeate everywhere. But on the streets, I want everybody to see a strong Latin man who will give you the shirt off his back. And under no circumstance are you to disrespect him because to disrespect me out here will get you hurt. That's how endearing the relationship is, mm-hmm. you know, about being authentic, you know? And when I have to chastise them, they know. They know because people chastise me and it worked. Right. And just so people know, you were telling me that at, at the center, 
most of your work is out on the streets. All of it is. No, when I say that, I mean, we have an active street outreach program. We go see people and that and that. Right. But the biggest thing I do is go outside. I smoke, so don't get mad at me. I go outside and smoke a cigarette, and I'm out there all day long hanging with people. All day long, because these are my people I'm checking on. Have you eaten today? What you doing? Yo, man, you're looking like crap. I'm out there every day. My biggest job is when I stand at the front door to remind people that we're here. Right. It's not like you're specializing in providing medical care, or providing, you know, addiction recovery services. You go out on the street, but you, I remember you really moved me when you told me. You don't ask somebody what they need. You just know. Oh, yeah. That's what I call know your audience. Mm -hmm. Know your audience. You've heard my story. I know my audience. You follow what I'm saying? I know my audience. All I got to do is listen to you a little bit, and I'll, I'll figure you out like a jigsaw puzzle real quickly. Right. Why? Because those are features that resided in me. Those are part of what made me who I am. You know, so when you say we don't provide medical services, no. But I have medical people that come here. We don't provide addiction services, no. But I got a whole cadre of people that service my people. Right. But the point of contact is the one thing that we are masters of, you see, because we go to them. We don't ask, do you want help? We simply provide help, let them dictate how that is received. Right. The other part that I, I think it's important to emphasize is look at who found you and who you found. I mean, you, you didn't just stay angry and not having, not knowing your biological father or having a rough time with your stepfather. Men found you mm -hmm. and you found them. You let them in. Yes, sir. You didn't say so, so angry about your father or your stepfather that you wouldn't let another man near you. So right. I, I have this sense that, you know, the universe keeps providing something. If you don't get it biologically, it's not like it's never going to exist. And somehow you saw the authenticity in at least those three pivotal people. Absolutely. Who got three and they could see it in you. And you had this wonderful interchange of them recognizing and validating you and you seeing that they were authentic in doing that. Absolutely. And that allowed you to respond. That's so important to me. Yeah, you know, Henry, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's my unknown saving grace. You know, I mean, I didn't know that it, they were going to heal me. I never went there with that idea right. like, oh, I want to attach to you, be my daddy. No, 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 no. What happened too that I really haven't spoken much about throughout this interview, but I want to put it in context because they too, they were the result of the impact that these men had. I'm a father of three. Mm -hmm. I was engaging in the same things that I said I hated about my father. Right. And I had to address this question to myself along the way when one day in my drug-induced days, my, father, my young son was riding in the back of the car and he says, Daddy, when I grow up, I want to be just like you. And I remember I was so strung out saying, oh, God forbid, don't let that happen to my child. And it sort of made me have to think, what kind of an image was I creating for my, my son and then most especially my daughter, the love of my life? What kind of an image was I creating for them that they would then go out and pursue or become something that I didn't want them to be? And I had to change that, Henry. That, that was a conscious decision. I owed it to them for what I put them through. Yeah. So right now, when I send a copy of my white paper to my children, I'll autograph it with all the love of life. Daddy, yeah. thank you for never giving up on me. That's and again, true. these three men never gave up on me. Right. They fought for me. They stood with me. And so, Henry, I am compelled to take that energy and pass it along. You know, you never want to get involved with Rudy and a family that's in distress because I am the consummate vicious advocate. Right. And, and I think it comes from those experiences. It comes from healing from those experiences right. and drawing from the tenacity of, of people persisting with me when I couldn't get through my own stuff. Now I teach that. <laughs> we have a question. What was the role of your mother in your development and what was missing when she died? The role of my mother in my development was uh, I was mama's boy. She once said to somebody, well, she once had an interview, a conversation with me when she was chastising me, but it speaks to how grand the love I had for my mother. She was always, she was the one that kept me focused. That in basketball, but that's another interview. So my mother one day says to me, 
when I was having problems, she goes, you know, Rudy, she was singing, she would talk like this. You know, Rudy, your brother, George, he don't give me no problems. Your brother, Tavo, he don't give me no problems. But you, Rudy, you always give me problems. You always bring me problems. And she would always rescue me. So that is transferable. It's what I do to others. Mm-hmm. You always bring me problems, but you know what? Let's fix it. But my mother, my mother was my saving grace. She raised three boys. She went through a lot of her own personal challenges. My mother was uh, hospitalized in a mental health hospital. That freaked me out. That's another interview. Yeah. But again, all these pieces, all these events leading to an evolution of which as the oldest, I had to look out for my two younger brothers. And then there came a time where they split us up and that was traumatic. But then we came back together. And again, as the oldest, I was mom's guardian. And as the oldest, I was my two younger brothers' protectors. So I took on this role of what it is to be a father. And I remember my mother in the older days when she was soon to pass, she would say to me every time I say something, oh, you're not my husband. <laughs> I go, well, you're not my wife, mommy. So <laughs> do me a favor. Please take your medications. Or please don't do this. Or mom, you know you shouldn't eat this. But it was uh, well, it sounded like she loved you very much and you loved oh, her. Oh, yeah. Listen, man, I quit so many jobs in those years I was in Arizona because I was like Forrest Gump jumping off the ship. <laughs> Rudy, mama's sick. What? Supervisor, I quit. <laughs> Run to the airport, jump on a plane, and come home. And mommy always knew that no matter where I was, because I was always gone. I don't know if I was running from myself or hiding from myself, but I was always gone somewhere all over the United States. Always, you know, like the Johnny Cash song, you know, I've been everywhere, man, kind of thing. And, and in that sense, my mother was a blessing. She died on uh, July 14th of 2013. During the last days of her life, I just basically did nothing but be her, you know, driving Miss Daisy, you know, driving mama, taking her here, taking her there, doing this, running errands, getting meds, cooking for her, cutting the grass, just becoming her total caretaker. Until I finally became to the point where her conditions would always lead her to hospitalizations. And then finally, on a, on a Monday morning, I'll never forget it, I went to, she like, I had finally brought her closer to home where we lived in New Jersey to a nursing home. So it made it easier for me to, you know, interact with her. And I brought her home. And I'll never forget, uh, it was um, it was in the month of July, because it was only a few days before that. And I brought her a hot chocolate, which she loved, and a uh, a muffin with blueberries that she loved from Dunkin' Donuts. And so I brought it in and I said, mommy, mommy, you know, how are you doing? And she looked reasonably well. She looked a little tired, but she looked well that morning. And um, she sat down and she put her stuff down. I said, mommy, mommy, go ahead and, you know, eat your, uh, eat your stuff. Oh, okay, mijo, I, I'll do it in a little bit. And uh, she said these words out of nowhere. She says, I'm tired. And I remember hearing that, and I looked at my mother, I swear, this is going to make me cry. I looked at my mother, and I said to her, Mommy, I'm tired for you, too. At that point, I, I didn't know what else to do. I went home that day in the afternoon. Later that evening, I get a call from the nursing home saying that my mother had been taken back to the hospital, that her condition had worsened. And from there, uh, they transported her to the University of Pennsylvania, which then at that point, I had to take over proxy. And when they opened up the curtain to see my mother, my mother was intubated. And I, I just, I just, I just lost it. I just, I was like, oh no, oh no, God. Anyway, she was discharged, sent back home. We tried to operate on her heart when she needed, but she was too frail. She had a battle with diabetes. This is how I get all this knowledge about health and all those things. Mm-hmm. And we brought her back to a hospital local, closer to where we live in New Jersey. And, um, I went in about three days before she passed. I remember I got all dressed up, just like I am now. I don't film. I brought my Bible and I sat by her side and I, and I read my Bible and I, you know, I kind of stroked her hands and I looked at my mother, just knowing that that this is this was the final leg of this journey. And so I placed the call to my brother in Puerto Rico and my other brother and said, uh, "Mom's likely not to make it." And I, I held off taking out the the, the tubing life saving equipment. And it was a Sunday. I had gone to church that morning. I'd come in, my brother had arrived from Puerto Rico. This now would be July 13th. It was a Sunday. He had arrived from Puerto Rico. I remember we assembled with the pastor of the church I was attending at the time and the doctor, my other brother, my middle of brother was there and I. And I looked at the guys and I said, um, gentlemen, I think this is it. Unless there's an objection to my brother Tavo 
that was an objection because at this point, I think it's time to let mommy go. Came back, my other brother, he was a little emotionally defiant, so I didn't waste my time with him. But I turned to the doctor and said, this is it, sir. Go ahead and, and, and do what you have to do. I'll be back. So anyway, I went home that day, left a few people that were there with her, and I received the call probably about 7 o'clock that evening that uh, mom had passed. And then from there, it was preparation. It was saying goodbye to her. She's buried in a military uh, facility in New Jersey. Uh, we were military people. So um, I go there once a year to check in with her. And uh, I faithfully go once a year. And I've not gone this year, but um, I will be going soon. It's just something that I have to do. And so the story of my life with my mother is that she was the greatest love of all because she was the greatest love of all that ever failed me. And, and that, that's to set aside the three men I talked about. Mommy was the man. Mommy was the mother. Mommy was everything. Mm -hmm. And so I always had this relationship with my mother of, you know, we were only like 15 years apart. You know, my mom birthed me at 15. You know, so one night we were way apart, we were apart. But I give thanks to my mother for everything that I've achieved. I give thanks to my mother for the independence that she created in me as a man. You know, cook, clean, wash, so, you know, you name it. You know, mommy always made sure I, I want you boys to be independent. So in that respect, I'm from the lineage of my grandfather who served people in the Depression. You know, he used to give out bags of rice and beans, and I remember he went down poor. But I always remember that stories of, told of my father about how just how great people saw him as because he was someone who just gave it away, you know, without the expectation of a return. And Yet, because he had a business, he was able to provide for people in the community. So my mother served in nursing homes with disabled people. You know, we come from a lineage of, of service, you know, and, and that's who we are. And so I'm probably the one remaining descendant, I would argue, of my generation, who really is somebody who was involved in, in public service. Well, you certainly are. Well, it's such an honor to talk with you. And I hope we get to do it again. We'll learn a little yeah. bit about the center. And yeah. I know you have many more stories we didn't even oh, get yeah. to touching. Yeah, absolutely. The main goal of where we are right now, guys, is that I'm healing. I am well. It's been a rough road, but I see roads that are rougher for others, and I'm compelled to make sure that they don't have the same outcomes in the way that it did for me, but the same results in terms of change, in terms of hope, in terms of realizing that but for God's grace, there we are. And it's never been about them. It's about we. And that's the part that I enjoy the most. And that's the part that I enjoy most about the respect that I receive from people on the streets. It's just the most amazing thing when I listen to people talk about Clinton and go, oh, my God, I would never go down there. Well, you know what? I don't blame you because you're worse than the people that are here, to be frank. But in this respect, I mean, that's softly, guys. Don't get mad at me. But in this respect, it's a choice. And it's a choice that I thank God that I finally accepted what he wanted me to do and he graciously reminds me and rewards me every day that he's happy i know father tracy's happy he's doing cartwheels in heaven so with that in mind let me leave everybody with this final parting thought i had a conversation with his sister one day and she said these words to me she said prior to father's dying during that time she said rudy you know when father passes you're gonna have some friends in high places and i didn't quite I didn't catch that. You know, it took me like about five minutes. And I go, excuse me, his name, his sister named Tree. What did you just say? You know what? I didn't think about that. You're absolutely right. And then I got Jim and Reverend McCree and my mother and all those people who have died on Clinton Avenue. Mm -hmm. That's the one segment of my work that I want people to remember. They are the ones who have inspired me, family, the people who have died here. I miss them. It hurts my heart. But I also know that I have to do honor to them. And to honor them is to have done what we did with the white paper and to do these kind of interviews and to tell these kind of stories, to remind people that we're all broken vessels. It's a question of what are you going to do about it? Thank you. Thank you, Rudy. Bye, familia. If you find yourself enjoying our podcasts, please do us a favor and spread the word. Tell a friend about it. Give us a review on iTunes or post it on social media. If you or someone you know would like to participate in a future podcast, please connect with us through the Contact Us page. See our events calendar page for dates to our next live podcast recordings. We'd love for you to participate and ask questions. And be sure to check out Joel Lessie's podcast, Unraveling Religion, on your favorite podcast app. 
Alchemical Dialogues are live and unscripted conversations recorded on Zoom, brought to you by the great folks of Amber Light International, a non-profit organization co-founded by Henry Curtella, MD, and Kathleen Fitzpatrick, LCSW. We choose topics from our current social and cultural climate with an emphasis on humanism and spirituality.